Chapter forty four of Uncle Silas by Joseph Sheridan Lefanu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty four. A friend arises. At the top of the great staircase, I was glad to see the friendly face of Mary Quince, who stood candle in hand, greeting us with many little courtesies and a very haggard and pallid smile. Very welcome, Miss. Hoping you are very well all well and you are well mary and oh tell us quickly how is uncle silas we thought he was gone miss this morning but doing fairly now doctor says in a trance like i was helping old wyatt most of the day and was there when doctor blooded him and he spoke at last but he must be awful weak he took a deal of blood from his arm miss i held the basin and he's better decidedly better i asked well he's better doctor says he talks some and doctor says if he goes off asleep again and begins a snoring like he did before we're to loose the bandage and let him bleed till he comes to hisself again which it seems to me and wyatt is the same thing almost as saying he's to be killed off-hand for i don't believe he has a drop to spare as you'll say likewise miss if you'll please look in the basin this was not an invitation with which I cared to comply. I thought I was going to faint. I sat on the stairs and sipped a little water, and Quince sprinkled a little in my face, and my strength returned. Milly must have felt her father's danger more than I, for she was affectionate and loved him from habit and relation, although he was not kind to her. But I was more nervous and more impetuous, and my feelings both stimulated and overpowered me more easily. The moment I was able to stand, I said, thinking of nothing but the one idea. We must see him. Come, Milly. I entered his sitting-room, a common dip candle hanging like a tower of Pisa all to one side, with a dim long wick in a greasy candlestick, profaned the table of the fastidious invalid. The light was a little better than darkness, and I crossed the room swiftly, still transfixed by the one idea of seeing my uncle. His bedroom door beside the fireplace stood partly open, and I looked in. Old Wyatt, a white, high-called ghost, was pottering in her slippers in the shadow at the far side of the bed. The doctor, a stout little bald man with a paunch and a big bunch of seals, stood with his back to the fireplace, which corresponded with that in the next room eyeing his patient through the curtains of the bed with a listless sort of importance. The head of the large four-poster rested against the opposite wall. Its foot was presented toward the fireplace, but the curtains at the side, which alone I could see from my position, were closed. The little doctor knew me, and thinking me, I suppose, a person of consequence, removed his hands from behind him, suffering the skirts of his coat to fall forward, and with great celerity and gravity made me a low but important bow. Then, choosing more particularly to make my acquaintance, he further advanced, and with another reverence he introduced himself as Dr. Jolks, in a murmured diapason. He bowed me back again into my uncle's study, and the light of old Wyatt's dreadful candle. Dr. Jolks was suave and pompous. I longed for a fussy practitioner, who would have got over the ground in half the time. "'Coma, madam, coma. Miss Ruthyn, your uncle, I may tell you, has been in a very critical state. 
highly so coma of the most obstinate type he would have sunk he must have gone in fact had i not resorted to a very extreme remedy and bled him freely which happily told precisely as we could have wished a wonderful constitution a marvellous constitution prodigious nervous fibre the greatest pity in the world he won't give himself fair play his habits you know are quite i may say destructive we do our best we do all we can but if the patient won't cooperate it can't possibly end satisfactorily and jokes accompanied this with an awful shrug is there anything do you think change of air what an awful complaint it is i exclaimed he smiled mysteriously looking down and shook his head undertaker-like why we can hardly call it a complaint miss ruffin i look upon it he has been poisoned he has had you understand me he pursued observing my startled look an overdose of opium you know he takes opium habitually he takes it in laudanum he takes it in water and most dangerous of all he takes it solid in lozenges i've known people take it moderately i've known people take it to excess but they all were particular as to measure and that is exactly the point i've tried to impress upon him the habit of course you understand is formed there's no uprooting that but he won't measure he goes by the eye and by sensation which i need not tell you miss ruffin is going by chance and opium as no doubt you are aware is strictly a poison a poison no doubt which habit will enable you to partake of i may say in considerable quantities without fatal consequences but still a poison and to exhibit a poison so is i need scarcely tell you to trifle with death he has been so threatened and for a time he changes his haphazard mode of dealing with it and then returns he may escape of course that is possible but he may any day overdo the thing i don't think the present crisis will result seriously i am very glad independently of the honour of making your acquaintance miss ruffin that you and your cousin have returned for however zealous i fear the servants are deficient in intelligence and as in the event of a recurrence of the symptoms which however is not probable i would beg to inform you of their nature 
and how exactly best to deal with them so upon these points he delivered us a pompous little lecture and begged that either milly or i would remain in the room with the patient until his return at two or three o'clock in the morning a reappearance of the coma might be very bad indeed of course milly and i did as we were directed we sat by the fire scarcely daring to whisper uncle silas about whom a new and dreadful suspicion began to haunt me lay still and motionless as if he were actually dead had he attempted to poison himself if he believed his position to be as desperate as lady knollys had described it was this after all improbable there were strange wild theories i had been told mixed up in his religion sometimes at an hour's interval a sign of life would come a moan from that tall sheeted figure in the bed a moan and a pattering of the lips was it prayer what was it who could guess what thoughts were passing behind that white filleted forehead i had peeped at him a white cloth steeped in vinegar and water was folded around his head his great eyes were closed so were his marble lips his figure straight thin and long dressed in a white dressing-gown looked like a corpse laid out in the bed his gaunt bandaged arm lay outside the sheet that covered his body was this awful image of death we kept our vigil until poor milly grew so sleepy that old wyatt proposed that she should take her place and watch with me little as i liked the crone with the high cauled cap she would at all events keep awake which milly could not and so at one o'clock this new arrangement began mr dudley ruffin is not at home i whispered to old wyatt he went away wi himself yesternight to clopperton miss to see the wrestling it was to come off this morning was he sent for not he and why not he would na leave the sport for this i'm thinking and the old woman grinned uglily when is he to return when he wants money so we grew silent and again i thought of suicide and of the unhappy old man who just then whispered a sentence or two to himself with a sigh for the next hour he had been quite silent and old wyatt informed me that she must go down for candles ours were already burnt down to the sockets there's a candle in the next room i suggested hating the idea of being left alone with the patient hoot miss i dare not set a candle but wax in his presence whispered the old woman scornfully i think if we were to stir the fire and put on a little more coal we should have a great deal of light he'll have the candles said dame wyatt doggedly and she tottered from the chamber muttering to herself and i heard her take her candle from the next room and depart shutting the outer door after her here was i then alone but for this unearthly companion whom i feared inexpressibly at two o'clock in the vast old house of bartram i stirred the fire it was low and would not blaze i stood up and with my hand on the mantelpiece endeavoured to think of cheerful things but it was a struggle against wind and tide vain and so i drifted away into haunted regions uncle silas was perfectly still i would not suffer myself to think of the number of dark rooms and passages which now separated me 
from the other living tenants of the house. I awaited with a false composure the return of old Wyatt. Over the mantelpiece was a looking-glass. At another time this might have helped to entertain my solitary moments, but now I did not like to venture a peep. A small thick Bible lay on the chimney-piece, and leaning its back against the mirror, I began to read in it with a mind as attentively directed as I could. While so engaged in turning over the leaves, I lighted upon two or three odd-looking papers, which had been folded into it. One was a broad-printed thing, with names and dates written into blank spaces, and was about the size of a quarter of a yard of very broad ribbon. The others were mere scraps, with Dudley Ruffin penned in my cousin's vulgar round hand at the foot. While I folded and replaced these, I really didn't know what caused me to fancy that something was moving behind me, as I stood with my back toward the bed. I do not recollect any sound whatever, but instinctively I glanced into the mirror, and my eyes were instantly fixed by what I saw. The figure of Uncle Silas rose up, and dressed in a long white morning-gown, slid over the end of the bed, and with two or three swift noiseless steps stood behind me, with a death-like scowl and a simper. Preternaturally tall and thin, he stood for a moment almost touching me, with the white bandage pinned across his forehead, his bandaged arm stiffly by his side, and diving over my shoulder with his long thin hand, he snatched the Bible and whispered over my head, The serpent beguiled her, and she did eat. And after a momentary pause, he glided to the farthest window, and appeared to look out upon the midnight prospect. It was cold, but he did not seem to feel it. With the same inflexible scowl and smile, he continued to look out for several minutes, and then with a great sigh, he sat down on the side of his bed, his face immovably turned towards me, with the same painful look. It seemed to me an hour before old Wyatt came back, and never was lover made happier at sight of his mistress than I to behold that withered crow. You may be sure I did not prolong my watch. There was now plainly no risk of my uncle's relapsing into lethargy. I had a long hysterical fit of weeping when I got into my room, with honest Mary Quince by my side. Whenever I closed my eyes, the face of Uncle Silas was before me, as I had seen it reflected in the glass. The sorceries of Bartram were enveloping me once more. Next morning the doctor said he was quite out of danger, but very weak. Milly and I saw him, and again in our afternoon walk we saw the doctor marching under the trees in the direction of Windmill Wood. "'Going down to see that poor girl there?' he said, when he had made his salutation, prodding with his levelled stick in the direction. Hawk, or hawks, I think. Beauty's sick, Maud, exclaimed Milly. Hawks, she's upon my dispensary list, yes, said the doctor, looking into his little notebook. Hawks, and what is her complaint? Rheumatic fever. Not infectious? "'Not the least, no more, as we say, Miss Ruffin, than a broken leg.' And he laughed obligingly. So soon as the doctor had departed, Milly and I agreed to follow to Hawkes's cottage and inquire more particularly how she was. 
To say truth, I am afraid it was rather for the sake of giving our walk a purpose and a point of termination than for any real charitable interest we might have felt in the patient. Over the inequalities of the upland slope, clumped with trees, we reached the gabled cottage with its neglected little farmyard. A rheumatic old woman was the only attendant, and having turned her ear in an attitude of attention, which induced us to gradually exalted keys to inquire how Meg was, she informed us in very loud tones that she had long lost her hearing, and was perfectly deaf, and added considerably, "'When the man comes in, up and he'll tell you what you want.' Through the door of a small room, at the further end of that in which we were, we could see a portion of the narrow apartment of the patient, and hear her moans and the doctor's voice. "'We'll see him, Milly, when he comes out. Let us wait here.' We stood upon the door-stone, awaiting him. The sounds of suffering had moved my compassion and interested us for the sick girl. "'Blessed if here isn't Pegtop,' said Milly. And the weather-stained red coat, the swarthy forbidding face and sooted locks of old hawks loomed in sight, as he stumped, steadying himself with his stick, over the uneven pavement of the yard. He touched his hat gruffly to me, but did not seem half to like our being where we were, for he took surlily and scratched his head under his wide-awake. "'Your daughter is very ill, I'm afraid,' said I. "'Aye, she'll be costing me a handful like her mother did,' said Pegtop. "'I hope her room is comfortable, poor thing.' "'Aye, that's it. She be comfortable enough, I warrant. More nor I. It'll be all Meg and now to Dickon.' "'When did her illness commence?' I asked. "'Day and mare were shot Saturday. "'I talked a bit with the workers' folk, "'but they won't gee on out, dang em. "'And how be I to do it? "'It'll be always hard bread with Silas, "'and a deal harder now she's ten in pain. "'I won't stand much longer. "'Gammon, if she keeps on that way, I'll just cut. "'See how the workers' fellas are like that.' "'The doctor gives his services for nothing,' I said. "'And does nothing, bless him. <laughs> "'No more nor that old death gammon there "'that cost me three tisses a week "'and ain't worth a apeth. "'No more nor Meg there "'that's making all she can of them pains. "'They'll be all a-fallin' o' me "'and thinks I don't know it. "'Eh? We'll see.' "'All this time he was cutting a bit of tobacco "'into shreds on the window-stone.' A working man be same as a horse. If he bain't cared, he can't work. Tisn't in him. And with these words, having by this time stuffed his pipe with tobacco, he poked the deaf lady, who was pattering around with her back toward him, rather viciously with the point of his stick, and signed for a light. It bain't in him. You can't get it out of him. No more no you draw smoke out of this. And he raised his pipe an inch or two with his thumb on the bowl, "'Well, backy and fire, it isn't in it.' "'Maybe I can be of some use,' I said, thinking. "'Maybe,' he rejoined. By this time he received from the old deaf Abigail a flaming roll of brown paper, and touching his hat to me he withdrew, lighting his pipe, and sending up little white puffs like the salute of a departing ship. So he did not care to hear how his daughter was, and had only come here to light his pipe. Just then the doctor emerged. "'We have been waiting to hear how your poor patient is to-day,' I said. "'Very ill, indeed, and utterly neglected, I fear. 
if she were equal to it but she's not i think she ought to be removed to the hospital immediately that poor old woman is quite deaf and the man is so surly and selfish could you recommend a nurse who would stay here till she's better i will pay her with pleasure and anything you might think be good for the poor girl so this was settled on the spot dr jokes was kind like most men of his calling and undertook to send the nurse from feltram with a few comforts for the patient and he called dickon to the yard gate and i suppose told him of the arrangement and milly and i went to the poor girl's door and asked may we come in there was no answer so with the conventional construction of silence we entered her look showed how ill she was we adjusted her bedclothes and darkened the room we did what we could for her noting beside what her comfort chiefly required she did not answer any questions she did not thank us i should almost have fancied that she had not perceived our presence had i not observed her dark sunken eyes once or twice turned up towards my face with a dismal look of wonder and inquiry the girl was very ill and we went every day to see her sometimes she would answer our questions sometimes not thoughtful observant surly she seemed and as people liked to be thanked i sometimes wonder that we continued to throw our bread upon these ungrateful waters milly was specially impatient under this treatment and protested against it and finally refused to accompany me into poor beauty's bedroom i think my good meg said i one day as i stood by her bed she was now recovering with the sure reascent of youth that you ought to thank miss milly i'll not thank her said beauty doggedly very well meg i only thought i'd ask you for i think you ought as i spoke she very gently took just the tip of my finger which hung close to her coverlet in her fingers and drew it beneath and before i was aware burying her head in the clothes she suddenly clasped my hand in both of hers to her lips and kissed it passionately again and again sobbing i felt her tears i tried to withdraw my hand but she held it with an angry pull continuing to weep and kiss it do you wish to say anything my poor meg i asked now miss she sobbed gently and she continued to kiss my hand and weep but suddenly she said i won't thank milly for it's a you it baint her she hadn't the thought no no it's a you miss i cried hearty in the dark last night thinking of the apples and the way i knocked em away with a poor of my foot the day father rapped me o'er the head with his stick it was kind of you and very bad of me i wish you'd beat me miss you're better to me than father nor mother better to me than a and i wish i could die for you miss for i'm not fit to look at you i was surprised i began to cry i could have hugged poor meg i did not know her history i have never learned it since she used to talk with the most utter self-abasement before me there was no religious feeling it was a kind of expression of her love and worship of me all the more strange that she was naturally very proud there was nothing she would not have borne from me except the slightest suspicion of her entire devotion or that she could in the most trifling way wrong or deceive me i am not young now i have had my sorrows and with them all that wealth 
virtually unlimited, can command, and through the retrospect a few bright and pure lights quiver along my life's dark stream, dark but for them, and these are shed not by the splendour of a splendid fortune, but by two or three of the simplest and kindest remembrances, such as the poorest and homeliest life may count up, and beside which, in the quiet hours of memory, all artificial triumphs pale and disappear, for they are never quenched by time or distance, being founded on the affections, and so far heavenly. End of chapter 44